kudos on this podcast. I have so enjoyed listening to it. And I think you're you're offering a real service to the uh, policy stakeholder community with, uh, with this podcast, says somebody who's a huge podcast fan. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my fabulous colleague, Chris Sands. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Nice to be back. Great to be back with you on Canusa Street. I would say Canusa Street is a beautiful tree-lined avenue, um, or a parkway, perhaps, with forests on either side. And how appropriate, because we have a wonderful discussion today about the role that trees and forests play um, in in reducing carbon in our world and in other things in our world. So so I'm excited about the conversation today, Chris, and maybe I could uh, turn it over to you to introduce our, our good friends and special guests and uh, introduce the topic. Excellent. I, I love your your visualization of uh, Canusa Street, Scotty. It, it's sort of an homage to Stephen Sondheim as we go into the woods here with uh, with with these two great guests. We have, and I'm just going in alphabetical order by last name, not in precedence of awesomeness, but uh, we have with us Heidi Brock, who is president and CEO of the American Forest and Paper Association. She serves as the chief advocate for pulp paper packaging and wood products uh, in the manufacturing sector, which accounts for approximately 4% of total U.S. manufacturing GDP uh, and generates about $300 billion in products annually, employing 950,000 men and women uh, in the United States, which is really amazing. Um, we also have with us Derek Nyber, who is her counterpart in many ways in Canada, uh, proud to represent Canada's forest products industry and the important role that it plays in the lives of 230,000 forestry families in over 600 communities across Canada. Um, Derek's also, uh, in 2019, had a, had a global role because he was elected president of the International Council of Forest and Paper Associations, where he chaired a group on Forest Products Association leaders from 28 countries around the world. And uh, on the global stage, he continues to represent Canada's forest products industry on the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations Advisory Committee on Sustainable Forest-Based Industries, AXFI, if I've said that right. So uh, welcome to you both. This is exciting. (laughs) Thank you. It is so great to be with you guys. Um, I, for one, will promise not to sing any Sondheim um, I can't. I, I don't know about you, Derek. No, I'm out. <laughs> All right. So no show tunes, but questions. Well, I'm really excited to see to see two great leaders here. And funny enough, I think the last time I saw both Heidi and Derek was about a year apart, but in the same room of the same hotel, which is the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C., overlooking the White House. It's my favorite place in D.C. to host something. And I think Heidi and I saw each other at a at a at a lunch maybe for the premier of Quebec on his very first uh, trip as premier to Washington. And then Derek and I saw each other for a dinner that had uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and half the cabinet. And Chris, I think you were there too. So anyway, it's good to, it's good to connect with you guys virtually. Let me, let me start. um, And just by asking this, I, I mean, In the pandemic in particular, over the last two years, um, I've been more aware than ever of paper products because 
almost everything that I bought came to my house um, in a in a box, cardboard box, um, and had some packing material. So if I wasn't focused on it before, I, I am now. And and what I also know is when we think about climate change and we think about carbon sinks and what to do about carbon reduction, forests play an incredibly important role. So I wonder if I could ask each of you to just kind of paint the picture for us for us of um, your industry, both in terms of daily life and in terms of um, impact on the planet. And maybe maybe Derek, we'll start with you since we're uh, since I happen to be in Canada today. Uh, we'll 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 uh, ask you to go, and then we'll ask Heidi to jump in. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for the opportunity, and and hi Heidi, nice to see you uh, again. I um, yeah, I think you know uh, the. The, the pandemic brought about a lot of, I think, maybe new ways of looking at things. And, and one of them was, of course, not only the, the pervasiveness and the importance of, of paper and, and related products uh, in our homes, but also the, the hygiene benefits uh, of them. I think that's something we saw really clearly in Canada. We also, uh, I was for part of the pandemic was known as the toilet paper man here in Canada, too, because we had that, that famous run on toilet paper in grocery stores um, at, the, at the very beginning. But, um, you know, I think the the, not only the, the health and hygiene benefits of our products have come into light, but also um, in a lot of cases, the, the products that they can displace that often are more fossil fuel intensive to make. And, and, I, and we're seeing uh, beyond some of the more traditional products um, are wood fiber based residuals going into products like biofuels and bioadhesives. So, um, you know, what we would call in Canada, you know, the, the emerging forest bioeconomy uh, is not only some of those staples that we know well in our homes, uh, but also some emerging product areas that present, I would say, new opportunities uh, for the environment and, and new opportunities for, for, for our economies, both in Canada and the U.S. Thanks, Derek. Heidi, maybe you could jump in here. And then, and then after you describe that, let's talk about carbon sinks, because that's a concept that's important. Well, uh, again, it is so wonderful to be with you today. It's always a pleasure to be with my colleague uh, from Canada, Derek Nybor. I always learn something when when we're together. And let me just mention, say too, kudos on this podcast. I have so enjoyed listening to it, and I think you're you're offering a real service to the uh, policy stakeholder community with uh, with this podcast. Um, says somebody who's a huge podcast fan. So uh, you're a part of my regular listening routine. So if you think you've done a terrific job of setting up our products, um, Scotty and, you know, Derek providing some additional kind of life to those products, I, I would also really like to underscore that, that people dimension. So one of the things we do really well in the United States and Canada is grow trees. And if you look at our region compared to other parts of the world, we have abundant trees. They have different ownership patterns and such, but we are really good at growing those trees. And as such, through time, what we've also become really good at is uh, responsibly manufacturing products in, and oftentimes in rural communities. So in the United States, our industry is a top 10 manufacturing sector uh, employer in 45 states. And so we have a huge footprint. We have hundreds of mills across the United States. And these, you know, our membership is made up of small, medium, large companies, um, often in rural communities, but also in urban communities as well across the country. 
And we're really um, engaged at every stage of the paper production process. So that includes, you know, recovery and the recycling system. We use leftover materials from manufacturing to make carbon beneficial bioenergy. Um, so in addition to being, to using a renewable resource like the, the tree fiber to, as the base of our products, our manufacturing processes are enormously, um, efficient in using every ounce of waste and converting that into energy wherever possible. So we're able to uh, rely on our own energy as increasingly as much as possible. But these members include companies that uh, not only convert or create the products, the paper and packaging products, but they also collect, sort, and recycle the paper. And they convert that recycled paper then into new uh, raw materials that can be made and produced into new products. So uh, in addition to this manufacturing and that first use dimension, I just wanted to bring in the tremendous recycling story as well. In the United States, we have more than 100 materials recovery facilities and about 80% of our paper mills use some amount of recycled fiber in the products. I know that since we've been um, talking about reshoring some activities, we've discovered a lot of recycling products were going to China to be recycled and now we're having a hard time recycling them. But paper products are different. We mostly recycle those here in North America close to home. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, we've had about two thirds of the paper used in the United States. It's about 47 million tons each year is recycled and then used to make new sustainable paper products um, that we all use every single day. And I'm also really pleased to say that, um, again, we are, we continue to be relevant to the modern economy because our industry has either planned or announced about $5 billion in manufacturing infrastructure investments to just continue to advance and use uh, the recycled fiber in the best possible way for our products. So that's about $2.5 million per day in, in investments. And it's just uh, the recycling success story has been tremendous since we first started uh, roughly 35 years ago. Wow. A similar story uh, in similar Canada, story Derek? In Canada. Yeah, different governance around recycling and whatnot. We've got a lot of uh, provincially mandated curbside programs here, but but in our, in our more, um, you know, in our larger provinces, definitely high recycling rates in that 70 to 80 percent range. I, I feel like, you know, I think we kind of grew, grew up with our blue box here in the province of Ontario, where I'm from. Um, and uh, and and that continues to be a legacy and important um, uh, a project and an ongoing ongoing service in, 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 in our communities. I want to talk about um, the role that forests play in carbon reduction, because in a in a strange it's a strange way to put it this, you know, to say it like this, but it seems to me it's almost a free service. You know, trees, um, much like the ocean, and we'll we'll do separate a separate podcast on the ocean, but, you know, trees and forests provide a place for carbon um, to reside and take it out of the atmosphere, I think. Can you walk walk through, is that part of the, the climate ambitions having, you know, um, sustainable forest practices and and what does that besides recycling what does that really mean sustainable forest practices and and what role do forests really play in carbon reduction to the world 
yeah, trees are carbon sucking machines. And, and we say in Canada that you can basically get from a tree what you can get from a barrel of oil. Um, and that's really the magic, I, I would say, uh, of forestry in, in terms of solutions in that move to a lower carbon economy. Um, I, I also, you know, we in, in Canada and the U.S. have seen brutal and much more catastrophic fire patterns, which are, are significant carbon spewing events. And, and actually our forests in Canada are, are now, you know, net carbon sources because of fire. Um, and, and, and we know that managing those forests and doing more thinning and doing more uh, fire breaks and whatnot is going to be key to making those forests more resilient and to keep those forested communities and the families who live there safer from fire. So, so it does start with forest management and just, you know, imagine a, imagine a log going to the sawmill and, and, you know, you make that, you make that lumber that goes into uh, building construction, uh, that carbon stays in that lumber. That's, that's carbon that stays sequestered in that property for generations. Um, so that's part of the opportunity. So you think about the avoided emissions, if you can prevent fires from happening by good management, you can lock carbon into a long-lived wood product and get it into the into the built environment. You then take the wood chips and the shavings and the sawdust that comes out of the sawmill, and that goes to a pulp facility, or it goes to a paper mill, or it goes to uh, it goes to a biofuel plant. So you know that's that's our kind of what we call our that's our circular economy in forestry, getting value from every part of that tree that drives not only the green results and the and the great environmental outcomes, but also critical family supporting jobs, products. And, you know, I think, listen, we're, a lot of us are talking now about sovereignty around being able to provide for our own people. Um, and there was a fascinating study uh, that was released just a few weeks ago by the International Boreal Forest Researchers Association. It was six boreal scientists from, you know, Russia, Scandinavia, Canada, and, and, and the, you know, looking at Alaska in terms of the boreal forest there. It, it, that study showed very clearly that, the, the Scandinavian efforts in terms of intensively managing their forests, providing the products that Scandinavians want and need, and the carbon story was much better than it was in Canada or Alaska because of the fire factor. So I think as we deal with worsening pests, worsening fires, those impacts of a changing climate, the case is, is easy and, and is right to be made for the need to manage our forests more. And it's not just the carbon value too, Scotty. You know, we're managing for recreation. We're managing for indigenous values. We're managing for flood mitigation. There are dozens and dozens of value. Even in Canada, we're working with all-terrain vehicle groups and snowmobile clubs while we're in there you know where do you where do you want your trail to be where do the trappers and the hunters want to go so really you know based on local community need and 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 and, and that local input to drive land use planning and and related decisions thank you so much for that you know i don't know if people who live in the eastern part of north america um appreciate the role of fires. And, and you mentioned it, Derek, and I'll, I'll just say, you know, I was in Montana last summer. We had a brief period where we could travel before things got locked down again. And I was at a, at a meeting and the sky, you couldn't see the blue sky in big sky country, Montana last summer. And it wasn't because there were fires in Montana. The fires were um, much further west, but the way the, way the weather patterns are or the wind patterns are, um, the smoke blew right into uh, the valley there. And it was, it was quite striking. And I thought, um, I, I, I appreciated kind of for the first time, um, 
what a huge effect the fires have in in big parts of, of our country. And then on top of that, so that was the first meeting. And then a, a week or two later, I was in Custer, South Dakota. And uh, Custer State Park is proud to be a state park. They, they distinguish themselves. They say, we're not a federal park, we're a state park. I made that mistake. Uh, I thought it was a national park. And one of the ways they distinguish themselves is they're very proud of the way they clear the floor, essentially, of the forest. They groom it almost so to in order to prevent fire, because if there isn't all of that, you know, um, fuel for the fire on the floor, the fires burn out. They don't they don't travel as quickly. And the Custer State Park has not only some incredible buffalo or bison, um, but also has these. Um, forests that are old and they're beautiful uh, and they're not as prone to fires as their immediate surroundings. So anyway, I just wanted to talk about that because I I don't think people, unless you live there, I don't think you focus on fire as much. And besides it being a carbon event, which I hadn't thought about and being catastrophic, which people in California and, and British Columbia certainly know, also the smoke has an effect like in the entire Columbia River Basin on crops. You know, the potato crops last year, for example, in the Columbia River Basin were not good. And yep. I just know because I've been working on potatoes. So anyway, the fires are a big deal. Um, Heidi, do you want to weigh in on the on kind of the environmental aspects of forest management and what you see in the United States? Yeah, thank you for that. And um agree, you know, these the forest fire situation is is a serious concern. I think that one of the important things to note, though, is that so a vast majority of the wood that's used to produce the essential paper and wood products in the United States is sourced from private lands. And those private lands are sustainably managed forest lands. The The fire situation in the United States tends to be more of a federal lands issue. So so we get into some very um, sensitive management topics. Um, I would say, though, that I think that it's been terrific that there's um, terrific cooperative research between um, and shared research between the U.S. and Canada on things like insect infestation and things of that sort. But in terms of land ownership in the United States, you know, more than a billion trees are planted in the United States each year. And in the last 30 years, the U.S. forest has actually increased by nearly 33 million acres. So when you try to kind of visualize what does that look and feel like, that's about the same as our forest growing uh, the size of more than 2,200 football fields every single day. It's it's vast. So when I said at the beginning that one of the things that we share in the United States and Canada is the ability to grow trees really well. That's that's what we're trying to give some life to. Um, but I think too the you know our members at AFMPA are very active in promoting the diverse values provided by U.S. forests. These are you know values that Derek mentioned: the water, carbon, biodiversity, recreation, the products. Uh, so we're supporting conservation and restoration programs. We're engaged in partnerships. We're investing in research, outreach, education. And again, we're promoting those um, sustainable forest management practices. And in fact, um, AFMPA members, as a condition of membership, are asked to adhere to the sustainable fiber procurement principles that we have that really work to assure that the wood is sourced from suppliers that are committed to 
sustainable management and harvesting practices. If I can add there, Heidi underscores a really important point about the one of the differences between Canada and the U.S. So so in Heidi's, you know, Heidi talked about the private land dominance uh, uh, on which the industry operates in the U.S. completely different in Canada. More than 90 percent of the lands that that our companies in Canada are working on are under the purview of provincial governments. So we have very, very different uh, rules and regulatory structure, um, a, a lot more, um, just very, very different considerations in Canada um, based on that bias. Now, we've got some fair bit of private land in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, but across the country, it's, it's, it's mainly on public land. So that social license test, that duty to that duty, uh, that duty of care in working with local communities to get input, local science, local values, very, very different dynamic that underpins the way, the way we do forestry in Canada. And Derek, what, what would you say as a policy leader is your biggest policy challenge uh, Getting- when you interact <laughs> Getting government on the same page, especially on climate and carbon policy, we we have, you know, you know, it's 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 not like you know. I would look at maybe the cement or the steel industries where you've got intensive production processes where you're looking for new technologies to decarbonize, you know, at at the facility, at the manufacturing facility. In forestry, we not only have the carbon storing power of the wood products. We have the displacement power of the residuals that can go in to make, you know, a more environmentally friendly products. We have the maintenance and the work on the land base to avoid fire. We have our mills where we can further reduce emissions. So I'm finding in Canada, you know, as we roll out different carbon policies and carbon tax policies and carbon tax revenue recycling, I, we're having a real heck of a time here to get government considering a whole of government approach and some policy coherence. I feel unfortunately, and it's it's and it's not from lack of effort. It's very well intended on our federal government's part, but I think they just don't get us sometimes. I feel we're playing a game of whack-a-mole or, or chasing our tails here. Um, uh, and and one of the things we're 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 having some meetings on the next couple of weeks is to try to get the government as you know in Canada, we're the government's releasing its emissions reduction plan to 2030. We're ready to step up and play a role, um, but 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 we've got full value chain solutions that even include moving more from truck to rail. Um, so so that's our big push in Canada. Can we get government working consistently and clearly and more strategically to empower and enable our solutions? Thanks for that, Derek. How about you, Heidi? What's the biggest policy challenge you've got? You're there in Washington D.C. Uh, you interact with policymakers on a pretty regular basis. So, what's your what's your number one issue? It's hard to to uh, choose a favorite number one. <laughs> um, let me echo what Derek said about getting um, government on the same page, but also the different aspects in the United States. Anyway, the different different parts of our value chain on the same page around. Um, how we make a, a contribution to this uh, changing climate that we're uh, that we're facing. So again, the United States and Canada, we're really good at growing trees. So, but we've also, through time, become really good at also producing these products that support so many hundreds and hundreds of rural communities. So, how do we make sure that as we're looking to create policies and incentives to store carbon we don't cut off the uh, the vitality that the this fiber flows into and creates so much economic and environmental 
uh, well-being. So how do we make sure that we get it right? How do we make sure that we balance all of the all of the interests and we don't tilt ourselves too heavily in one direction so that in the end we all end up uh, looking to um, other places that are trying to kind of come into the market and capture the market opportunity for amazing products. We, we started our conversation with the, the remarkable products. These are products made from a renewable resource. They're sustainable. You can recycle them. And then that circle, that uh, circular economy just keeps churning around and working so positively. And so consumers demand are, are looking for those products. And so how do we strike the right balance as we address uh, very important topics um, like um, climate change and uh, and work to navigate those different interests. I, I know in some ways the two forest products industries are competitors. I mean, they're trying to produce similar products, but I know on some things, uh, various pests, invasive species and other things, there's a there's a pressure to work together. How, how would you talk about sort of the Canada-US relations of the forest sector? Is there fairly good cooperation? Is that uh, is that the norm? Has it been really driven by you know particular pests or or particular problems, uh, sort of crisis driven, or is it more consistent across time? Um, maybe Derek, let you start, and then and then over to Heidi. Yeah, I think you know I think I think it, it peaks when there's a big issue like a mountain pine beetle outbreak or emerald ash borer or spruce budworm. Um, but but definitely on pests and fire, there's a lot of collaboration. Um, there's also a lot of support, you know, in terms of sending firefighters north or south, whatever the need may be, to help each other out. Um, uh, you know that that's that's very very long standing and 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 a commitment that both countries have made to each other. Um, you know. I'd, I'd also say that, you know, our governments together signed uh, a, a, an agreement in terms of an approach on greening government and, and looking at procurement plans and whatnot. So so the Biden and Trudeau administrations have, you know, had signed an agreement, I, I think it was last year in that space. To uh, and, and I do know that our government in Canada understands, given the importance of that Canada-U.S. trading relationship, you know, we might not be able to have the same kind of carbon policies, but there is a want to try to get as much along alignment as possible. So so I think right across the board, we're seeing a lot of opportunities. And listen, we have our challenges. We've got the Softwood Lumber Agreement. It, it is what it is. Uh, you know, that means that's that's over $6 billion that that is just sitting there that we can't be using in our Canadian operations. So uh, I think there is that level of respect and understanding. Listen, we're not going to agree on everything. We're going to go to battle on some stuff and we will we'll take that on and we'll defend our, our, our sovereign interests. But but there is a lot more that 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 binds us together then, then keeps us apart. Then maybe I can just uh, pile on there and and add in that another area that we share is our we share waterways, right? So the Great Lakes is a great example of that. Um, and I think that in that you know there are examples there where uh, the governments and the members are looking to um, you know really look at water you know, water as an input into the papermaking process so uh, that we're managing that in a sustainable manner. So our members have committed to uh, really increasing water stewardship that's appropriate for the pulp and paper industry. And we're investing in efficient technologies to improve water stewardship, including water reuse and reclamation programs that really enable the mills to uh, use less water for manufacturing. Um, you know, water, water is a, an important resource. And again, one of those shared 
resources across uh, that that doesn't necessarily know borders. And uh, so there's a lot of sharing of of information and activity in that area as well. And can I pick up on that and ask about something else? It's become more of a topic because of COVID, and and that is uh, the, the workforce element. You know, you, you you want to attract young people into the field, and and I, I have a couple of colleagues at Wilson uh, who have kids who've gone or college age kids who've gone uh, and and worked in either planting trees or or getting involved in harvesting and so forth. Is it, as you, can the United States look at this in terms of an employment opportunity, a career that may not be, you know, for everybody, but uh, how, how do you see this employing Canadians, young Canadians and young Americans into the future? One thing that Derek and I do is we share a lot of information. If there are good ideas that can have an application uh, in one of our respective organizations, that's that's something that we absolutely support. Um, I think in, for our members, that is part of, part of the reason that we have had a longstanding commitment to sustainability, uh, that was exhibited in our, uh, Better Practices, Better Planet 2020 sustainability initiative. Last year, we released an update of that, of those goals, Better Practices, Better Planets, uh, 2030 sustainable products for a sustainable future. And I think that when an industry like ours roots itself and grounds itself in a clear articulation of ambitious sustainability goals. These are measurable goals. We are, we are looking at reducing emissions and improving our energy efficiency and improving our use of recycled uh, materials and creating new and innovative products, um, increasing the safety of our industry. I think it speaks to the value of this next generation. Uh, they want to do something that feels very meaningful with their life. And when you're working uh, to promote the use of these sustainable products, I think that that's a really compelling um, opportunity for for this next generation and why they should look seriously at the forest products industry as a great place to um, enjoy a long career. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I think maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll take a couple different parts uh, of this as we're seeing it in Canada. I think another thing that came up in the pandemic is people started rethinking about, do I want to stay in on the 14th floor of a condo in downtown Toronto? Um, I think we've seen a, a lot of moves of people to move a little bit further away from the city, and, and that's where we work. Uh, so that presents opportunities. We're also big believers, you know, we got a significant, and Heidi and I have talked a lot um, offline about equity, diversity, and inclusion, and, and what more can we do? Because, you know, you don't think it's not you wouldn't think immediately of forestry of being you know the most inclusive kind of job or environment and and it very much is uh, we've got and but but in order for people to see themselves there they kind of need to see people like them there uh, and that's why I think a lot of the modeling we've done with some leading women uh, in our industry with members of the LGBTQ2 community um, I had a great chat with a with a young member of that community in rural Alberta who was telling me yesterday that you know, based on a survey at, at uh, during his summer job, he wanted to talk about awareness uh, to support people from his community. And 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 the mill ran a, a diversity program specific to that to try to raise awareness. Uh, we've also got uh, in Canada, you know, we are operating basically where Indigenous peoples reside and live and have for millennia. Um, so those opportunities and in Canada, the Indigenous youth talent pool is the largest growing youth talent pool of all. Um, so 
how do we get some of those Indigenous youth involved? How do we connect with leadership in their communities? How do we get to them at school and in their communities? So anyway, just there's a lot of really exciting stuff. I know in Canada, we have our, our forestryforthefuture.ca website, which has a lot of information. We also have our greenestworkforce.ca website. And it's really getting out there to tell those stories. But those stories are best told by other people who are walking the talk. Speaking of speaking of great ideas, um, if I do say so, I, I have an idea for you. Um, and it has to do with trees and it has to do with political symbolism. You know, in Washington, D.C., every spring we have the Cherry Blossom Festival. And the Cherry Blossom Festival is literally cherry trees that bloom. They were planted along the Tidal Basin where the Jefferson Memorial is. They're planted all around these beautiful spots of Washington. And they were a gift of Japan. A uh, hundred years ago, international friendship. The U.S. reciprocated with a gift of dogwood trees. So, if you go to Japan at the right time of year, you can see beautiful dogwoods. Canada, for the 150th birthday, uh, gave the U.S. maple trees. And there's a small grove behind the FDR Memorial of maple trees. And this is something that I had been, um, you know, championing for years and years. But now there's a new opportunity. The Pennsylvania Avenue corridor, which is the main ceremonial route that runs from the Capitol right in front of the Canadian Embassy up to the White House, they are redoing that corridor um, and they've got a request for proposals in. And one of the things I think is at the beginning of this podcast, I talked about Canusa Street uh, being a, a tree lined avenue. I think there could be a way that Canada contributes maple trees uh, to the ceremonial corridors, even more so than it already has along Pennsylvania Avenue and through the World War I and World War II memorials and on up to the White House. And maybe even like in Ottawa, uh, as Chris and people in Ottawa know, there's a tulip festival every year that, that is beautiful and commemorates uh, a gift of the Netherlands uh, to Canada and people plant tulips in their front yards. Maybe even we we give maple trees to every school and they can manage the carbon reductions um, of their own tree and they can think about the Canada-US friendship. So there you go. That's my plug. Um, and it's I something for you guys to think about. I love it. Can I geek out for a moment a little bit on tree planting? Oh, so because the maple yeah. tree is going to be fine, but I, I, if any foresters are listening to this, I know they'd want me to say, you can't just move one tree or one plant from one country to another. You need to do your homework and make sure it's not going to create a problem. Maple's totally fine, but I just thought maybe I'd, I'd get a bit techy here for a second. Well, yeah, we don't want to get you in trouble with your members. No, no. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question about maybe the, the context in which we're having this conversation because Canada and the U.S., you know, clearly get along, both participate in this industry, but it's global. And I know there was a period of time when China was a big purchaser of North American forest products. Um, we're certainly seeing the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and you, you have some forestry in that region too. Globally, even if North America is a fairly uh, good uh, sort of island, everyone's getting along, where do you see demand rising? And how do you see the relationship between Canada and the U.S. Um, and, and global export markets uh, where people are really looking for what the kinds of things and the quality and the values that lie behind the things that you produce. 
Yeah, maybe I'll start. You know, World Bank came out with a report a few years ago that talked about the demand for solid wood, you know, increasing fourfold over the next couple of decades. Like, it's significant. And you know what? I'd rather get my wood from Washington State or Quebec than 10 hours outside of Moscow. I don't know about you. So, uh, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for our countries as as the demand for not only solid wood, but paper packaging and and forest bioproducts, a huge opportunity to take advantage of that. I, I, I think we have an opportunity to provide more for our own people and bring more and bring more to the world. So, you know, the, the global piece is really important. And, and the table that the International Council of Forest and Paper Associations that Heidi and I sit on together, you know, Heidi and I have a lot of conversations, you know, we'll, you know, being a boreal country uh, in Canada, I do a lot of work with our uh, Swedish and, and Finnish counterparts. That's hugely valuable. And a lot of great sharing on not only developments around fire or carbon policy, but also around worker safety and diversity, like really across the business. It's, it's just so valuable to have that network of partners around the world who are dealing with different issues and different government priorities. But it's, it's amazing how many similar issues people are working through and how many great ideas we get from each other. Yeah, maybe I can just uh, add in there uh, a couple of things. First of all, we have been so fortunate to have Derek as the um, chair of the of the ICFPA of the International Council of Forest and Paper Associations, he has led us. Uh, this is again, he's pulling us together as a group of leaders of these associations from across the world, and he did it at a time when we were all um, working to kind of sort through the pandemic, and you know those early conversations of just being able to share. Uh, how were we approaching things? Um, we quickly realized, you know, the benefit of speaking very strongly about the essential workforce that we had, the critical, va- the, the critical supply chains, uh, that our industry provides across the world. And so there was just tremendous, um, comfort and sharing in, uh, sharing information, best practices under, under Derek's, uh, fantastic leadership. I, I really have valued, uh, both the ICFPA, but I have valued Derek's leadership with that organization. I think what I would also add that we do through that group that's been, um, powerful, I think, is we, we pull together the common sustainability story. We produce every two years, a new sustainability report for the entire industry across the world. And so we released one in 2021 and you can find that. We'll make sure that um, there's a link available in the show notes, uh, but that helps us talk about the the impact and very positive impact that our associations and our members are having um, on the circular economy. That is a perfect place, the circular economy. We have come full circle uh, in this discussion. We're so grateful to Heidi and Derek. It doesn't surprise me, Heidi, that the Derek is providing great leadership on the global stage. He's he's done that for many years in his career. Um, and, and we're also glad that you're in this sector. On behalf of all of us listening, thank you so much to both of you for joining us and uh, and we really look forward to see, seeing how things go uh, in your discussions with governments and with stakeholders in the years to come. And, and, and I learned a lot today. How about you, Chris? I learned a lot, too. And I have to get, take my hat off if I had a hat to Heidi because um, she's in Washington. You know, you and Scotty, you and I are often in Washington. So few people are self-conscious enough to spell out acronyms. 
uh, so that people listening can know what the jargon is. It's a terrible Washington habit of just rattling off letters, but you have such a good touch. So uh, no wonder you're a good communicator for your industry. It's been great to be with you both. Yeah, thank you. This it's a labor of love for us. Like we there's so much to love about this industry and what we're doing and you just need to go to a forestry community or a mill just to see the people in our sector. They're a pretty special group and it's an honor to represent and stand for them. Well, I, I think they'll be proud that you told their story so well and uh, hopefully we'll we'll have you back on the street even if you don't decide to line it with maple trees to make Scotty happy. We'll we'll still have you back. have a picture in my mind of, you know, Lumberjack and Lumberjill. I I think this was a wonderful discussion with people who grow trees for a living, who cultivate trees into forest products and who, you know, replant them as as part of the carbon uh, emission reduction solution that our planet needs. So I I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation with Lumberjack and Lumberjill. Yeah, well, me too. And I have to say that I I work enough uh, at the university with young people. I know how important the motivation, the inspiration about a job. It's not just that you want a paycheck, it's that you want to believe in what you're doing. And I think their message that what they're doing is is really a positive contribution to the planet, to the environment, but also to the economy is one that will attract a lot of people who may not have thought of this as their career. And now as we come out of COVID, I think we've come to appreciate the people who can telework, but also the people who don't have the chance to telework and getting out to the great outdoors, having a, a sector like this as an employer, I think is a great asset for both our countries and, and really a positive story. It was great hearing from them. Working outside sounds really good, although I will tell you from Ottawa today, it's like 50 below. So today would not be the day I'd want to be working out in, in, in the forest sector, but uh, I agree with you. It's a wonderful opportunity. Great summer job. <laughs> great summer job. All right. Uh, with that, great to see you, my friend. Nice to see you. We'll see you back on the street soon, I hope. Sounds good. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify.